When Native American children are removed from their homes, the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, provides important restrictions and preferences regarding that process. One of those preferences holds that such Native children be placed first with either extended family members or Native foster homes before the children can then be considered for placement in a non-Native home. The question before the court in this case was whether this restriction violates anti-commandeering principles of the Tenth Amendment. And in a 7-2 decision, the court said no, it does not. Now, as a side note, if you're interested in cases like these that deal with the special relationship between Native Americans and the federal government, you might be interested in listening to the 1974 opinion of the court in Morton v. Mancari, which I read in episode 78 last November. And now, the brand new June 15, 2023 opinion of the court in Holland v. Brackeen. Justice Barrett delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Jackson joined. Justice Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion in which Justices Sotomayor and Jackson joined as two parts, one and three. Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion. Justices Thomas and Alito filed dissenting opinions. This case is about children who are among the most vulnerable, those in the child welfare system. In the usual course, state courts apply state law when placing children in foster or adoptive homes. But when the child is an Indian, a federal statute, the Indian Child Welfare Act, governs. Among other things, this law requires a state court to place an Indian child with an Indian caretaker, if one is available. That is so even if the child is already living with a non-Indian family and the state court thinks it in the child's best interest to stay there. Before us, a birth mother, foster, and adoptive parents and the state of Texas challenge the act on multiple constitutional grounds. They argue that it exceeds federal authority, infringes state sovereignty, and discriminates on the basis of race. The United States, joined by several Indian tribes, defends the law. The issues are complicated, so for the details, read on. But the bottom line is that we reject all of petitioners' challenges to the statute, some on the merits and others for lack of standing. Part 1. Section A. In 1978, Congress enacted the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, out of concern that an alarmingly high percentage of Indian families are broken up by the removal often unwarranted, of their children from them by non-tribal public and private agencies. Congress found that many of these children were being placed in non-Indian foster and adoptive homes and institutions, 
and that the states had contributed to the problem by failing to recognize the essential tribal relations of Indian people and the cultural and social standards prevailing in Indian communities and families. This harmed not only Indian parents and children, but also Indian tribes. As Congress put it, there is no resource that is more vital to the continued existence and integrity of Indian tribes than their children. Testifying before Congress, the tribal chief of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians was blunter. Quote, Culturally, the chances of Indian survival are significantly reduced if our children the only real means for the transmission of the tribal heritage are to be raised in non-Indian homes and denied exposure to the ways of their people. Unquote. The act thus aims to keep Indian children connected to Indian families. Indian child is defined broadly to include not only a child who is a member of an Indian tribe, but also one who is eligible for membership in an Indian tribe and is the biological child of a member of an Indian tribe. If the Indian child lives on a reservation, ICWA grants the tribal court exclusive jurisdiction over all child custody proceedings, including adoptions and foster care proceedings. For other Indian children, state and tribal courts exercise concurrent jurisdiction, although the state court is sometimes required to transfer the case to tribal court. When a state court adjudicates the proceeding, ICWA governs from start to finish. That is true regardless of whether the proceeding is involuntary, one to which the parents do not consent, or voluntary, one to which they do. Involuntary proceedings are subject to especially stringent safeguards, any party who initiates an involuntary proceeding in state court to place an Indian child in foster care or terminate parental rights must notify the parent or Indian custodian and the Indian child's tribe. The parent or custodian and tribe have the right to intervene in the proceedings, the right to request extra time to prepare for the proceedings, the right to examine all reports or other documents filed with the court, and for indigent parents or custodians, the right to court-appointed counsel. The party attempting to terminate parental rights or remove an Indian child from an unsafe environment must first satisfy the court that active efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitative programs designed to prevent the breakup of the Indian family and that these efforts have proved unsuccessful. Even then, the court cannot order foster care placement unless it finds by clear and convincing evidence, including testimony of qualified expert witnesses, that the continued custody of the child by the parent or Indian custodian is likely to result in serious emotional or physical damage to the child. To terminate parental rights, the court must make the same finding beyond a reasonable doubt. The Act applies to voluntary proceedings, too. Relinquishing a child temporarily to foster care or permanently to adoption is a grave act 
and a state court must ensure that the consenting parent or custodian knows and understands the terms and consequences. Notably, a biological parent who voluntarily gives up an Indian child cannot necessarily choose the child's foster or adoptive parents. The child's tribe has a right to intervene at any point in a proceeding to place a child in foster care or terminate parental rights, as well as a right to collaterally attack the state court's decree. As a result, the tribe can sometimes enforce ICWA's placement preferences against the wishes of one or both biological parents, even after the child is living with a new family. ICWA's placement preferences, which apply to all custody proceedings involving Indian children, are hierarchical. State courts may only place the child with someone in a lower-ranked group when there is no available placement in a higher-ranked group. For adoption, a preference shall be given to placements with 1. a member of the child's extended family, 2. other members of the Indian child's tribe, or three other Indian families. For foster care, a preference is given to one, the Indian child's extended family, two, a foster home licensed, approved, or specified by the Indian child's tribe, three, an Indian foster home licensed or approved by an authorized non-Indian licensing authority, and then four, another institution approved by an Indian tribe or operated by an Indian organization which has a program suitable to meet the Indian child's needs. For purposes of the placement preferences, an Indian is any person who is a member of an Indian tribe, and an Indian organization is any group owned or controlled by Indians. Together, these definitions mean that Indians from any tribe not just the tribe to which the child has a tie, outrank unrelated non-Indians for both adoption and foster care. And for foster care, institutions run or approved by any tribe outrank placements with unrelated non-Indian families. Courts must adhere to the placement preferences absent good cause to depart from them. The child's tribe may pass a resolution altering the prioritization order. If it does, the agency or court affecting the placement shall follow such order so long as the placement is the least restrictive setting appropriate to the particular needs of the child. So long as the least restrictive setting condition is met, the preferences of the Indian child or her parent cannot trump those set by statute or tribal resolution but where appropriate, the preference of the Indian child or parent shall be considered in making a placement. The state must record each placement, including a description of the efforts made to comply with ICWA's order of preferences. Both the Secretary of the Interior and the child's tribe have the right to request the record at any time. State courts must also transmit all final adoption decrees and specified information about adoption proceedings to the Secretary. Section B. This case arises from three separate child custody proceedings governed by ICWA. 1. ALM was placed in foster care with Chad and Jennifer Brackeen when he was 10 months old. 
Because his biological mother is a member of the Navajo Nation and his biological father is a member of the Cherokee Nation, he falls within ICWA's definition of an Indian child. Both the Brackeens and ALM's biological parents live in Texas. After ALM had lived with the Brackeens for more than a year, they sought to adopt him. ALM's biological mother, father, and grandmother all supported the adoption. The Navajo and Cherokee nations did not. Pursuant to an agreement between the tribes, the Navajo nation designated ALM as a member and informed the state court that it had located a potential alternative placement with non-relative tribal members living in New Mexico. ICWA's placement preferences ranked the proposed Navajo family ahead of non-Indian families like the Brackeens. The Brackeens tried to convince the state court that there was good cause to deviate from ICWA's preferences. They presented favorable testimony from ALM's court-appointed guardian and from a psychological expert who described the strong emotional bond between ALM and his foster parents. ALM's biological parents and grandmother also testified, urging the court to allow ALM to remain with the Brackeens, the only parents ALM knows. The court denied the adoption petition, and the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services announced its intention to move ALM from the Brackeens' home to New Mexico. In response, the Brackeens obtained an emergency stay of the transfer, and filed this lawsuit. The Navajo family then withdrew from consideration, and the Brackeens finalized their adoption of ALM. The Brackeens now seek to adopt ALM's biological sister, YRJ, again over the opposition of the Navajo Nation. And while the Brackeens hope to foster and adopt another Indian child in the future, their fraught experience with ALM's adoption makes them hesitant to do so. 2. Alda Gracia Hernandez chose Nick and Heather Libretti as adoptive parents for her newborn daughter, Baby O. The Librettis took Baby O home from the hospital when she was three days old, and Hernandez, who lived nearby, visited Baby O frequently. Baby O's biological father visited only once, but supported the adoption. Hernandez is not an Indian, but Baby O's biological father is descended from members of the Isleta del Sur Pueblo tribe, and the tribe enrolled Baby O as a member. As a result, the adoption proceeding was governed by ICWA. The tribe exercised its right to intervene and argued over Hernandez's objection that Baby O should be moved from the Libretti's home in Nevada to the tribe's reservation in El Paso, Texas. It presented a number of potential placements on the reservation for Baby O, and state officials began to investigate them. After Hernandez and the Libretis joined this lawsuit, however, the tribe withdrew its challenge to the adoption, and the Libretis finalized their adoption of Baby O. The Libretis stayed in the litigation because they planned to foster and possibly adopt Indian children in the future. 3. Jason and Danielle Clifford, who live in Minnesota, fostered child P, 
whose maternal grandmother belongs to the White Earth Band of Ojibwe tribe. When child P entered state custody around the age of three, her mother informed the court that ICWA did not apply because child P was not eligible for tribal membership. The tribe wrote a letter to the court confirming the same. After two years in the foster care system, child P was placed with the Cliffords, who eventually sought to adopt her. The tribe intervened in the proceedings and, with no explanation for its change in position, informed the court that child P was in fact eligible for tribal membership. Later, the tribe announced that it had enrolled child P as a member. To comply with ICWA, Minnesota placed child P with her maternal grandmother, who had lost her foster license due to a criminal conviction. The Cliffords continued to pursue the adoption, but, citing ICWA, the court denied their motion. Like the other families, the Cliffords intend to foster or adopt Indian children in the future. Section C. The Brackeens, the Librettis, Hernandez, and the Cliffords, whom we will refer to collectively as the individual petitioners, filed this suit in federal court against the United States, the Department of the Interior, and its secretary, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA, and its director, and the Department of Health and Human Services and its secretary, whom we will refer to collectively as the federal parties. The individual petitioners were joined by the states of Texas, Indiana, and Louisiana, although only Texas continues to challenge ICWA before this court. Several Indian tribes intervened to defend the law alongside the federal parties. Petitioners challenged ICWA as unconstitutional on multiple grounds. They asserted that Congress lacks authority to enact ICWA and that several of ICWA's requirements violate the anti-commandeering principle of the Tenth Amendment. They argued that ICWA employs racial classifications that unlawfully hinder non-Indian families from fostering or adopting Indian children. And they challenged Section 1915C, the provision that allows tribes to alter the prioritization order on the ground that it violates the non-delegation doctrine. The district court granted petitioners' motion for summary judgment on their constitutional claims, and a divided panel for the Fifth Circuit reversed. After rehearing the case on banc, the Fifth Circuit affirmed in part and reversed in part. The en banc court concluded that ICWA does not exceed Congress's legislative power and that some of ICWA's placement preferences satisfy the guarantee of equal protection. The court was evenly divided as to whether ICWA's other preferences, those prioritizing other Indian families and Indian foster homes over non-Indian families, unconstitutionally discriminate on the basis of race. The Fifth Circuit therefore affirmed the district court's ruling that these preferences are unconstitutional. Petitioners' Tenth Amendment arguments effectively succeeded across the board. The Fifth Circuit held that Section 1912D's active efforts requirement, Section 1912E's 
and Section 1912F's expert witness requirements and Section 1915E's record-keeping requirement unconstitutionally commandeer the states. It divided evenly with respect to other provisions that petitioners challenge here. Section 1912A's notice requirement, Section 1915A and Section 1915B's placement preferences, and Section 1951A's record-keeping requirement. So the Fifth Circuit affirmed the district court's holding that these requirements, too, violate the Tenth Amendment. We granted certiorari. Part 2. Section A. We begin with petitioners' claim that ICWA exceeds Congress's power under Article 1. In a long line of cases, we have characterized Congress's power to legislate with respect to the Indian tribes as plenary and exclusive. Our cases leave little doubt that Congress's power in this field is muscular, superseding both tribal and state authority. To be clear, however, plenary does not mean free-floating. A power unmoored from the Constitution would lack both justification and limits, so like the rest of its legislative powers, Congress's authority to regulate Indians must derive from the Constitution, not the atmosphere. Our precedent traces that power to multiple sources. The Indian Commerce Clause authorizes Congress to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes. We have interpreted the Indian Commerce Clause to reach not only trade, but certain Indian affairs, too. Notably, we have declined to treat the Indian Commerce Clause as interchangeable with the Interstate Commerce Clause. While under the Interstate Commerce Clause, states retain some authority over trade, we have explained that virtually all authority over Indian commerce and Indian tribes lies with the federal government. The Treaty Clause, which provides that the President shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties, provides a second source of power over Indian affairs. Until the late 19th century, relations between the federal government and the Indian tribes were governed largely by treaties. Of course, the treaty power does not literally authorize Congress to act legislatively, since it is housed in Article II rather than Article I. Nevertheless, we have asserted that treaties made pursuant to that power can authorize Congress to deal with matters which otherwise Congress could not deal. And even though the United States formally ended the practice of entering into new treaties with the Indian tribes in 1871, this decision did not limit Congress's power to legislate on problems of Indians pursuant to pre-existing treaties. We have also noted that principles inherent in the Constitution's structure empower Congress to act in the field of Indian affairs. At the founding, Indian affairs were more an aspect of military and foreign policy than a subject of domestic or municipal law. With this in mind, we have posited that Congress's legislative authority might rest in part on the Constitution's adoption of pre-constitutional powers necessarily inherent in any federal government namely, powers that this court has described 
as necessary concomitants of nationality. Finally, the trust relationship between the United States and the Indian people informs the exercise of legislative power. As we have explained, the federal government has charged itself with moral obligations of the highest responsibility and trust toward Indian tribes. The contours of this special relationship are undefined. In sum, Congress's power to legislate with respect to Indians is well-established and broad. Consistent with that breadth, we have not doubted Congress's ability to legislate across a wide range of areas, including criminal law, domestic violence, employment, property, tax, and trade. Indeed, we have only rarely concluded that a challenged statute exceeded Congress's power to regulate Indian affairs. Admittedly, our precedent is unwieldy because it rarely ties a challenged statute to a specific source of constitutional authority. That makes it difficult to categorize cases and even harder to discern the limits on Congress's power. Still, we have never wavered in our insistence that Congress's Indian Affairs power is not absolute. It could not be otherwise. Article 1 gives Congress a series of enumerated powers, not a series of blank checks. Thus, we reiterate that Congress's authority to legislate with respect to Indians is not unbounded. It is plenary within its sphere, but even a sizable sphere has borders. Section B. Petitioners contend that ICWA exceeds Congress's power. Their principal theory, and the one accepted by both Justice Alito and the dissenters in the Fifth Circuit, is that ICWA treads on the state's authority over family law. Domestic relations have traditionally been governed by state law. Thus, federal power over Indians stops where state power over the family begins. Or so the argument goes. It is true that Congress lacks a general power over domestic relations, and, as a result, responsibility for regulating marriage and child custody remains primarily with the states. But the Constitution does not erect a firewall around family law. On the contrary, when Congress validly legislates pursuant to its Article I powers, we have not hesitated to find conflicting state family law preempted, notwithstanding the limited application of federal law in the field of domestic relations generally. In fact, we have specifically recognized Congress's power to displace the jurisdiction of state courts in adoption proceedings involving Indian children. Petitioners are trying to turn a general observation that Congress's Article I powers rarely touch state family law into a constitutional carve-out that family law is wholly exempt from federal regulation. That argument is a non-starter. As James Madison said to members of the First Congress, when the Constitution conferred a power on Congress, they might exercise it, although it should interfere with the laws or even the Constitution of the states. Family law is no exception. 
Section C. Petitioners come at the problem from the opposite direction, too, even if there is no family law carve-out to the Indian affairs power, they contend that Congress's authority does not stretch far enough to justify ICWA. Ticking through the various sources of power, petitioners assert that the Constitution does not authorize Congress to regulate custody proceedings for Indian children. Their arguments fail to grapple with our precedent and because they bear the burden of establishing ICWA's unconstitutionality, we cannot sustain their challenge to the law. Take the Indian Commerce Clause, which is petitioners' primary focus. According to petitioners, the clause authorizes Congress to legislate only with respect to Indian tribes as government entities, not Indians as individuals. But we held more than a century ago that commerce with the Indian tribes means commerce with the individuals composing those tribes. So that argument is a dead end. Petitioners also assert that ICWA takes the commerce out of the Indian Commerce Clause. Their consistent refrain is that children are not commodities that can be traded. Rhetorically, it is a powerful point. Of course, children are not commercial products, Legally, though, it is beside the point. As we already explained, our precedent states that Congress's power under the Indian Commerce Clause encompasses not only trade, but also Indian affairs. Even the judges who otherwise agreed with petitioners below rejected this narrow view of the Indian Commerce Clause as inconsistent with both our cases and long-standing patterns of federal legislation. Rather than dealing with this precedent, however, petitioners virtually ignore it. Next, petitioners argue that ICWA cannot be authorized by principles inherent in the Constitution's structure because those principles extend at most to matters of war and peace. But that is not what our cases say. We have referred generally to the powers necessarily inherent in any federal government and we have offered examples like creating departments of Indian affairs, appointing Indian commissioners, and securing and preserving the friendship of the Indian nations, none of which are military actions. Once again, petitioners make no argument that takes our cases on their own terms. Finally, petitioners observe that ICWA does not implement a federal treaty. This does not get them very far, either, since Congress did not purport to enact ICWA pursuant to the Treaty Clause power, and the Fifth Circuit did not uphold ICWA on that rationale. Presumably recognizing these obstacles, petitioners turn to criticizing our precedent as inconsistent with the Constitution's original meaning— Yet here, too, they offer no account of how their argument fits with the landscape of our case law. For instance, they neither ask us to overrule the precedent they criticize nor try to reconcile their approach with it. They are also silent about the potential consequences of their position. Would it undermine established cases and statutes? If so, which ones? Petitioners do not say. We recognize that our case law puts petitioners in a difficult spot. 
we have often sustained Indian legislation without specifying the source of Congress's power, and we have insisted that Congress's power has limits without saying what they are. Yet petitioner's strategy for dealing with the confusion is not to offer a theory for rationalizing this body of law, that they would at least give us something to work with. Instead, they frame their arguments as if the slate were clean. More than two centuries in, it is anything but. If there are arguments that ICWA exceeds Congress's authority as our precedent stands today, petitioners do not make them. We therefore decline to disturb the Fifth Circuit's conclusion that ICWA is consistent with Article One. This opinion has been divided into two parts, and we've just come to the end of the first. Next episode, we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>